0: Today's three readings are all related, although at first glance it doesn't seem that they are. We've got the Ten Commandments, of course, in the Torah portion. And then we've got the Isaiah 6 portion where God says you all are going into exile. And then we have the Gospel reading. Yeshua is driving the money changers out of the temple. That goes right along with the Isaiah 6 passage. And the idea here is Israel has gone astray in both the gospel reading and the Isaiah reading. Now, coincidentally, for those of you who believe in coincidences, I got an email from Rabbi Kravitz again. And I am not knocking Rabbi Kravitz. I use his site, ish.com, quite a bit. He's a good man. He is, however, a member of Jews for Judaism which is an organization that is designed to counter Jews for Jesus. So that's his bias as we go along. Anyway, he was saying that one of the things that they do is they attend Messianic conferences. And they're there to try and get Jews away from Christianity. And of course, the conference is a conference of Messianics. So I'm going to read a couple sections of his letter So he said, during one cordial conversation with a, quote, messianic Jew, unquote, a conference leader approached us. Upon hearing my name, he became visibly upset and insultingly remarked, Rabbi Kravitz, you are merely a rabbinic Jew. We are biblical Jews. Like the founder of Jews for Jesus before him, the messianic leader considers Judaism to be a false religion that follows the words of men. Messianic Jews reject rabbinic Judaism and claim that they have the truth because their faith is based solely on the word of God. Fair enough. I responded to the messianic leader by asking, what's that on your head? He said a kippah. I pointed out that wearing a kippa isn't in the Bible. Rather, it is a rabbinic tradition. Similarly, the eight strings and five knots of the zitziot, corner fringes, which he was wearing are rabbinic and not mentioned specifically in the Bible. He also witnessed people lighting two Shabbat candles, which is not in the Bible. So what he's doing here is he's going through and he's saying, wait a minute, guys, you say that you're not rabbinic, but look at all of these things that you do, which come straight out of rabbinic Judaism. And he is absolutely correct. Kravitz is absolutely correct. Here. He then goes on in his letter saying the motivation is to fool Jews and make them feel comfortable coming into Christianity because it looks to them like just a very small step. You know, I can't speak for the Messianic Conference, but that's where he goes slightly astray. And then he goes on and he quotes today's Torah portion. Contrary to what Messianic Jews say, Rabbinic Judaism was a part of Biblical Judaism. In this week's Torah portion, the Torah is given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he transmits it to the Jewish people. With God's permission, Moses institutes a judicial system and appoints wise judges to assist the Jews in keeping the Torah by providing guidance for the path they shall follow and the deeds they shall do. Exodus 18.20 This pivotal event laid the foundation for an authoritative, God-given, rabbinic tradition. So what he's saying is because God establishes human government, which he did, then rabbinic Judaism is simply the human government that Judaism has evolved over the years and it is absolutely A authoritative and B kosher. That's his argument. And by the way this guy's not stupid, he's not wrong, and he's a good guy. First off, in this particular congregation most of us are not ethnic Jews. So most of us grew up in the Sunday church. And what we discovered is things like, wait a minute, the Bible says Shabbat is the Sabbath. What are we doing on Sunday and why are we mowing our lawns on Saturday? And so what we started doing is looking at the things that the Sunday church was doing and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this isn't right. Let's start keeping the Sabbath. Well, if you're going to start keeping the Sabbath, how do you do that? Well, it made sense to me to go look at somebody who's been doing it for 3,500 years. So, at least in my case, I can't speak for the conference he was at. I'm not trying to lead anybody anyway. What I'm trying to do is figure out how to do the things that God has told us to do. And in many cases, for example, the candle lighting, all of that kind of stuff, which is totally rabbinic. And if you like it, do it. If you don't like it, Don't do it. It is not a commandment of God. It's a tradition of men. And to say that it's a tradition of men doesn't mean that it's worthless. It simply means it's not scripture. So my dear wife and I, every Shabbat, we bake bread, we have wine, we have two candles on the table, we pray together. I pray Proverbs 31 over her. All of those are not commanded. But we like it. We enjoy it. You may do something else entirely different. God bless you. Now, what we've got going on in today's Torah portion and the half Torah and the apostolic reading is God is giving his people a covenant. Back in Exodus 19, which is before the Ten Commandments, You have this going back and forth between Moses and the people and God. So Moses is the intermediary. He's the, if you will, matchmaker. So God tells Moses, all right, this is what I want to do. Moses goes down, talks to the people. People say, no, okay, that sounds good. Moses goes back and says, yeah, they agree. So that's what's going on in chapter 19. So then we have chapter 20 where God speaks. The point is... One of the things that the Ten Commandments are, are the statement of a covenant. And in the statement of a covenant, one of the things that you do is identify the parties. So the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's who I am. The way you can look at the thou shalt nots is that's a description of the other covenant party. In other words, the other covenant party is not a thief not an adulteress, not a liar, not covetous. So you can look at it as don't do those things, but you can also look at it as this is the other party for the covenant. It works both ways. So you've all heard this riff. Maybe some of you haven't. I'll do it very quickly. What was intended was that God was going to write his Torah on the hearts of the people. The people said, stop. If we hear the voice of God, we're going to die. Moses, you go find out what he's got to say. Come back and tell us. We'll do it. But don't let God tell us directly. And as I'm fond of saying, that's the point when tablets of stone became operative. What was intended originally was the Torah written on a human heart, which is what Jeremiah 31 talks about, Ezekiel, all of the prophets talk about is at some point the Torah is going to be where it's supposed to be on a human heart instead of on tablets of stone. Tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. So what happens here is God gives us the tablets of stone. He also gives us the authority to make human government. So in this Rabbi Kravitz is absolutely correct. And what Rabbi Kravitz is talking about when he's talking about rabbinic Judaism is, by the way, the exact same thing as the Catholic Church talks about when they say, well, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which is from the chair, then it's just as binding as Scripture. So humans do this. The rabbis do it. The Sunday Church does it. Islam does it. That's the way people are. There isn't anything... Nefarious in that. The problem is, over a period of time, people drift. And that's where we come to Isaiah. It says, Make the heart of this people dull, lest they understand and change, and I heal them. You sort of say, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't God in the forgiving business when we repent? The analogy I will give you is let's say that you are married to an alcoholic and the alcoholic throws away the liquor for about a week and then a week later shows up drunk and you get on him, him or her and oh he repents she repents throws away the alcohol for another week so. The thing here with Isaiah is, God has told them over and over and over again through the prophets repent, come back to what I want you to do. And you get these 20 minute revivals, and then we're back on the booze. So at this point, God has finally decided all right, this isn't working. You guys can't govern yourselves. So, what I'm going to do is, we're going to whistle up some Assyrians. And they will govern you for a while, and we'll see how you like that. So that's what's going on in that passage. It is not a statement that God's unforgiving. It's a statement that, well, you've quit cigarettes or quit booze or quit whatever 36 times here, and I just don't believe you anymore. And, by the way, the same thing is happening with Yeshua, where Yeshua is cleaning out the temple and so forth. What he's saying is, hey, folks, God has talked to you over and over and over again, and the party's over. You're about to go into exile. So it's the same kind of thing, and that's why it matches with the Ten Commandments, because what the Ten Commandments do is tell us how to avoid going to exile. Organize your life this way and your relationship to me, God, this way, and things will be well with you. Now... One of the things about the Ten Commandments is it's a list of what I would call negative space. The only positive commandment in there is your relationship to God and your parents. Love Lord your God, don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath, honor your parents. Those are positive. On the other side are negative. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Those are negative. The thing about negative commandments is they provide the greatest possible liberty. As long as you're not a murderer, as long as you're not an adulterer, as long as you're not a thief, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief. I don't care. Do whatever you want. Just stay out of that negative space. So what it does is it gives you the maximum possible liberty within a system of order people of course focus on what we can't do sort of like Eve, she's got the whole garden fruit all over the place, Eat whatever you like well but wait a minute, there's that one there and just you know, like a two year old going for a light socket she's focused on what she can't have and that's just the way humans are so let's talk about human governance, which is what Rabbi Kravitz is talking about and what the Ten Commandments are talking about and what the other readings are talking about. First off, human governance is ordained by God. It is not bad. God is not an anarchist, neither am I. Human government's important, whether it happens to be rabbinic government or church governance or, or civil governance. It's okay. The problem is standards. I started life in the Episcopal Church as a mature man, not as a kid. And one of the things that they said in the Episcopal Church is it's a three-legged stool. And the three legs of the stool are Scripture, Reason, and Tradition. On the surface, that makes sense. And by the way, that's what Rabbi Kravitz is saying in his own way. He's saying Scripture... Human reason and tradition, which is the rabbinic rulings, the oral Torah. The problem with that, however, is a three-legged stool assumes that all three legs are the same. They're not. Scripture is, if you will, a much longer leg of the stool than reason and tradition are. There's a legal term called stare decisis. What it means literally is stand on the decision the way I would describe it is don't solve the same problem twice. So if somebody comes into a courtroom having done something and the court looks at all the facts and so forth, goes to the law, does all the legal reasoning they need to do and says, all right, this is what the ruling is. They write it down. So the next time somebody comes into a court having done a similar thing, Instead of going back to the law books, what they do is they go back to the precedents. Somebody's already decided this case. How did they decide it? I don't need to go back to my law school books to figure this out. I'll just go and find out what this other judge did, and I'll follow that. That's what stare decisis literally means. Don't solve the same problem twice. The rabbis do the same thing. So as somebody comes to the rabbi and says, all right, what do I do about this? The rabbi goes back to the Torah initially, studies it, and says, all right, this is what you should do. That, by the way, is what Moses is doing in today's Torah portion. And what happens is his father-in-law says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't have the bandwidth to do that for the entire population. Get some other people to help you. And what they'll do is they will solve the easy cases, the ones that are obvious, the ones that have been solved over and over again before. They'll simply apply precedent. When it's a thorny one that you really have to go back and ask God, how do we handle that, they'll come to you. So there is nothing nefarious about this. The problem comes when the original decision is wrong. So if the original decision has got some kind of an error in it, And that decision then becomes part of precedent. What winds up happening is the whole population and legal system starts to drift. Because instead of going back to Scripture, what they're doing is going back to rabbinic rules or previous court decisions. And you're sort of trusting that the rabbinic ruling or the previous court decision was correct. And that may not be the case. When we talk about scripture, reason, and tradition, sadly, because this is the way we are, reason is the handmaiden of the emotions. Which is to say, you can reason your way into just about anything you want to do. There is really a good reason why I did this. And I can explain the logic to you. And, of course, the problem with it is it doesn't stand on Scripture. It stands on what I want, my emotions. And from there, I've got a really good logical mind, as most of you do. It's really good at rationalizing whatever I want to do. Well, the rabbis are the same way. Courts are the same way. It's all human. That's the way we are. So the idea of tradition, starry, thesesis, rabbinic tradition, whatever you want to call it, is not in itself nefarious. Humans are nefarious, and what they wind up doing is the whole society drifts. And that's where we get to our Isaiah passage, by analogy with a drunk spouse. The whole society has drifted at that point to the point where God finally says, All right, folks, you can't govern yourself. So we're going to bring in some, Isaiah's case, Assyrians. In Jeremiah's case, Babylonians. In 0 AD's case, Romans. But we're going to bring in these foreigners, and they're going to rule you for a while until you figure it out. You'll see that it's actually better to live under my authority than it is to live under these folks. So that's what's going on in the Isaiah passage and Yeshua, in the gospel. God has finally said, I don't believe your repentance anymore because it doesn't stick. So we're going to do exile. So I'm going to slip over to Luke. And this vignette, by the way, is in all three synoptic gospels. The Luke passage adds one thing that changes everything. So I'm in Luke 5, verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece with the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. You've all heard this ever since you were in kindergarten. Let's keep reading. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new because the old is good. That's the part that is not in the other two synoptic Gospels. This idea that the old wine is better than the new wine. If you read Christian commentaries on this, what they will say is rabbinic Judaism is the old wine, the Gospel is the new wine. Pretty much any Christian commentary worth its salt will give you that Yeshua is bringing the gospel. That's the new wine. And the rabbinic system, the old wine, can't contain it, so it has to be burst and the rabbinic system done away with so that the gospel can flourish. That is the Christian explanation of that. I will gently suggest to you that it's exactly wrong. And the reason you know it's exactly wrong is because that last little sentence... The old wine is good. So the new wine is the rabbinic system. And that new wine can't be contained in old wineskins. The old wine is the Torah, Moses. The old wine is what's good. The new wine, which is the rabbinic drifting over hundreds of years, They would occasionally jump up and make a golden calf. But most of the time, the drift was gradual. And that's the new wine that they're trying to put in the old wineskins. What they're trying to do is they are trying to dress up their new wine, which is rabbinic decisions or church father's decisions or papal decisions or any human government decisions and what they're trying to do is dress it up to fit into the old wineskins, which is Moses and what happens is it bursts you will read lots and lots of very good very competent Christian commentators who will tell you exactly the opposite and if you just read it from Matthew or from Mark that makes a great deal of sense because Matthew and Mark don't have this little thing that says the old wine is the good stuff. So if you read a commentary whether are in Matthew or Mark and you read the same thing, it will be, yeah, the gospel is the new stuff and the rabbinic Judaism is the old wineskin and you can't put the gospel in the old system. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's exactly 180 degrees out. And one of the things that we have, for those of you who have read our literature, is this quote from Jeremiah stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls we picked that up when we first started the idea here is Moses is the old wine Moses is what is good Moses is the ancient paths and look at much of the sunday church today i mean there are lots of good churches but there are lots of them that have become gay dating clubs One of them up on Lookout Road. Got rainbow flags all over the place. That is what I'm calling human reason drift. And what they've done is they have reasoned from God loves everybody, etc., etc., and it winds up being no standards. And that's not Moses. Moses has standards. We need standards. The standards we need, however, are God's standards, not necessarily man's standards. I said that very carefully. As I say, my dear wife and I, every Friday, do all sorts of rabbinic stuff to welcome the Shabbat. We like it. It's meaningful to us. It is not Scripture. And if you do something different, God bless you. We are not going to come over and inspect your Shabbat table... And say, oh, you really need two candles and you got to have salt on the plate. We're not going to do that. None of our business. But the fact that we enjoy that little ceremony and it makes Shabbat real for us, that's what tradition and those things are for. It's when they ossify, solidify into commandments that you start running into trouble. And that's what's happened with rabbinic Judaism. That's what's happened with Catholicism. That's what's happened with pretty much all human institutions, to include our own dear government. Over the years, people just sort of make slight changes, and we wind up being off in the weeds. The code of federal law bears very little resemblance to the Constitution. Just like rabbinic Judaism in some cases bears little resemblance to Moses. And that's what Yeshua is talking about. He says, you guys have made the commandments of God of no effect by your traditions. That's what he's saying. And Rabbi Kravitz, God bless him, I kind of like Rabbi Kravitz. Rabbi Kravitz has got standards. They don't happen to be my standards in some cases. But the man is trying to do what he thinks is right in the light of his understanding of God, and I respect that. Don't happen to agree with him on some stuff, but I respect what he's doing. And when he calls people out and says, "You Jews, you black hat, curly cue Jews are got a false religion," that's not true. I mean, in some cases it may, but so does the Episcopal Church, so does the Catholic Church, so does every other church. Going. And what we try to do is not buy into a lot of that stuff. We try and look at the stuff in the light of Moses and say, is this tradition okay? Candles on the Shabbat table. Nothing wrong with that. However, I've dedicated this to the temple. That means that I'm going to let my mom sleep in the gutter because I don't have any money to support her. No, no. That tradition is wrong and we're not going to follow it. And there are similar traditions in the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, the Baptist Church, any other church that you want to go to. Totally human. And the deal here is always, always, always go back to what Moses says. Start there. And then you can evaluate these traditions in the light of what Moses says. And your chances of going astray are reduced. Again, I said that very carefully. (laughs) Again, reason is the handmaiden of the emotions. And if you want to go astray in some area, your devious little mind will get you right there. We're very good at that. Let me finish with Jeremiah. This is from the passage I read earlier. Jeremiah 6. From the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed when they commit abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They don't know how to blush. Does that sound like our society? We've forgotten how to blush? Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. Thus says the Lord... Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. Walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I sat watch from over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. So, like my little analogy with a drunk spouse. At some point, God finally figures out that it isn't working. And I will gently suggest that we're probably on the cusp of something like that because we've forgotten how to blush. So, if you like Shabbat candles, enjoy your Shabbat candles. If you like bread and wine on your table, enjoy it. It's all okay. Take from Judaism the good. But look at it critically and recognize that just like everybody else, In some areas, they have drifted off into the weeds. That, by the way, is why they're still in exile. And I don't know that we're going into exile, but I'm sort of expecting that we're going to get corrected too, because that's what God does.